Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers and authors, to this Wild Isle writing cast I have with me, fellow dark, evil wizard, Nathaniel Cumberledge. How are you, Nathaniel? Excellent, excellent. Glad to be back. Yeah, uh, this is going to be a really fun topic, I think. It's going to be a little bit more philosophical than strictly literary, but I think that is for the best. I really want to explore the depths of art versus escapism in terms of literature. Uh, before we begin, uh, I've got some shilling to do. First things first, if you want to be part of this podcast, you can be. Uh, just get in contact with me or someone you know who is in contact with me some way, somehow. I'm all over social media. You can also go to my website, wildiolit.com slash contact, uh, and let me know you want to participate. Uh, if you don't want to come on the air, but you do want to recommend a topic that isn't already on our list, you can do so. What we have uh, as of yet, uh, well, at least as of recording, who knows once you see this, uh, we have theme as thesis symbols and meta narratives versus motifs. Uh, we have setting as world building, discussing what style is and narrative voice is. Uh, also within that is, is quality prose objectively so. Uh, we have one called regression to the means. So this is a conversation about the rules of writing and uh, when they help you and when they pull you below the wrong half of the bell curve. Um, we have when is the weeb always wrong, a discussion about how anime and manga can harm the novice author. Uh, what is the nature of villainy? What makes a villain? Why do people choose evil? Uh, one that's going to be close and dear to my heart when I finally get to get around to it. Reader writes versus justified writing. When is the author or reader in the wrong? Because I believe this is a conversation worth having. Uh, and one more I added uh, after, let's say, having some discussions over on Minds.com. So I have Neo Symposium, Eros in Fiction. When or how should or not an author include sex scenes in fiction? Uh, this was also after I had listened to uh, Plato because the audiobook of Plato's Symposium, uh, which is like, no offense to anyone who happens to be gay, but it's like the gayest thing in the world. Uh, if you've never read it or listened to it, just get to Alcibiades' speech. It's hilarious. All right. Um, before I go on, I've got a couple more things to shill. My editing service, please check out the Wild Isle style guide over at wildislelit.com. If you have a manuscript that you like to polish up, or even if you're a new writer and you're really just practicing, it is a great way uh, for you to learn all of the, let's say, technical skills that I had to, uh, let's say, shill out $100,000 in grad school for. So you don't have to. It's way cheaper and quicker and easier and more fun to do it with me. So check that out at wildislelit.com. And while you're there, uh, peruse my novel that's out now, Wand Smoke Broken. It's a weird fantasy fiction with an American twist. Kind of reads like a cross between fantasy, a Western, and a literary novel. I know that's weird. That's why you want to check it out. First chapter is free. You can listen to it or you can read it there. And it's available for sale on Amazon. Do I have anything else to show? I don't think so. All right, Nate. So let us get into the topic at hand, art versus escapism. I have a subtitle here, um, narratives as nourishment or decadence. Um, now, that I think is really the heart of the question. But before I go on and on about my feelings and thoughts on it, uh, I, I want you to define, or at least give me your definition of art, how you think of art. And then um, after that, go ahead and give me your definition of escapism. So definition of art, definition of escapism. 
All right. Definition of art. Art is very broad, but uh, it's uh, the use of uh, it using mediums to communicate fundamental human universals would probably be the broadest definition I can think of because like people like to uh, argue what is and isn't art a lot. But I I think that like but then there are people that say like the Campbell soup can is art, but that's it's neither here nor there uh so and as for escapism escapism is whenever you use art primarily as a means of communicating wish fulfillment versus actually tapping into any of the human universals which i'll i'll probably get into once we're through with each other's definitions of things yeah, so I have a, a question about the escapism. So just to make sure I understand correctly, in these two definitions, escapism would be like a subset of art, right? So an escapism would be a type of art. Yeah, I right? would still cons- I would still consider escapist creations to be art. However, I uh, I think that whenever we use escapism derogatorily, as you and I sometimes do. We're usually thinking of, like, art that does not, well, stuff that's created but doesn't really try to say anything, I guess. Yeah, this is where the conversation gets squirrely, because then we say, what do we mean by, we all turn into Kathy Newman right now, what do we mean by uh, say something, right? And that's a a valid question, though. Like, what do you mean? Say, when, when, what does it mean for art to say a thing? Uh, okay, so, art, uh, Almost all art says a thing to some degree. It's like you're creating something and it's communicating something that thematic usually or like a motif or something. It's uh but when you are creating something without presence of mind to say that you are um saying something, usually it means you're creating escapism. So a big debate in internet circles sometimes is like what's the word uh all art is political well i would say that all art has themes and such it's just whether or not you use those themes to communicate an idea or whether you are just like throwing things at a wall that you think are interesting and entertaining Okay, so there's actually three ideas there that because, you know, when people say all art is political, that makes me think of propaganda. And I think we'll save that for uh, a few seconds. We'll we'll eventually have to get to it because I think in a strange way, it's part of this conversation. Uh, And then we have escapism. Yeah. And then we have escapism that is, let's say, it's it's for the purpose of entertaining. It's for and, and then that kind of begs the question. What does it mean to be entertained? And then what is, uh, this is a question I wanted to ask. It's in my notes and this is, seems to be the appropriate time. So if escapism, we could say the telos or the purpose, the end of escapist art is to entertain. And we could say merely to entertain. It might do other things, but that is the that is the true and core and essential function. If it doesn't do that, it fails to be escapism, right? So then the question is, what is the telos of art writ large that makes like art that does not fall into the subcategory escapism? What is its 
function. You mentioned earlier um, that it communicates a universal. Would we say that that is a telos? Like the telos of art is the communication of some type of, is it just universal blank? Is it human universal? What kind of, like, what do we mean? Yeah, I mean, b due to uh, humans being the only creature we know of that can truly appreciate art in the way we think of it, I use human universals, but like hypothetical, other self-aware life forms may appreciate different kinds of art, but for the sake of this conversation, um, there is, uh, I forget uh, who came up with it, but there's this anthropological concept of human universals, which are things that resonate with people regardless of cultural background. So, to me, like, art generally, at least good art, crosses cultural boundaries and uh, communicates something that we all know to be true and interesting, I guess. Ooh, ooh, there, there's an interesting question that emerges. Is that true for escapism? Do does all does escapism entertain at a universal level? Actually, now that I'm thinking, sitting here thinking about it, I suppose it can on like a uh, on like generally a superficial level. Kind of like it's the difference between. Uh, let's look at antiquity, for example. I think it's the difference between a good theatrical performance in ancient Rome versus blood sports. It's like gladiatorial blood sports is the escapism and power fantasy of ancient Rome versus like tragic theater, which I think is more artistic in nature. I get what you're going for, but I have to disagree with the specific examples. I think if you got a bunch of men, you put them in a coliseum, like from any time and culture ever, and then you had people like cutting each other up and like basically doing the Roman equivalent of the uh, a, a more exciting version and Roman equivalent of like the WWF or something, then like they're they're going to start to get all pumped up. Uh, unless they're like really low testosterone, then maybe not. But um, <laughs> I don't know if that counts as a human universal. I kind of think it does. But you 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 picked up on the ticklishness uh, of the question, right? Because there definitely yes. is a lot of escapism. And you kind of, you, you skirted around it. But would you say there is a lot of escapism that is not universal or would not apply universally? Um, I would say that I don't know. Because, like... Escapist art can still be universally appealing. It's just usually crassly appealing and not really like it. It doesn't activate the almonds, so to speak, I guess, which is internet speak for it doesn't stimulate greater emotion. It's usually just like junk food entertainment, I guess. Yeah. And it, uh, so this is. This is where I see like a little chink in the conversation. Like if I I, I very much have on my Nietzschean hat, uh, and instead of chink, I should say there is a weak point with which I could apply a hammer right now and watch yeah. an idol come crumbling down. So it seems to me that some art also entertains and some escapism does not serve the function of art, right? Because the... The function of art, as we've, we've talked about, the telos of art, taps into some 
human universal, some, uh, let's say, I would say instinctive pattern that triggers um, some type of numinous experience in us. Um, and I actually have, let's say, something in addition to add to it, but I won't go too far. But at the very least, uh, at the very least, art does that, right? It has that that universal. Um, it's why people from various cultures and times, assuming you render it into a language they can understand, can appreciate, let's say, the Shakespeare's plays, right? Because the characters are going through human universal struggles, like Othello, uh, you think your wife is cheating on you. Like, there's probably never been a time at which, like, a, an alpha male man, who's definitely not, a, like, a, not a cuckoo, uh, or let's say plagued by a cuckoo bird, if we want to say it politely, um, is going to accept and tolerate that. Um, so, like, it's like 99 point, well, I hope 99.99% of men or whoever have existed are going to, uh, let's say, be able to empathize with Othello very easily. And, like, have to have, uh, let's say, one of your high up, um, you know, someone like Iago, who's like high up in the, chain of command he's supposed to be someone you can trust and you can't trust him right uh to you know stab you in the back so you have betrayal um you know you've got something like uh romeo and juliet where it's the the two uh you know they even say at the beginning like the star-crossed lovers like how many teenagers have have been in that situation like it, it's it's inevitable that there's going to be someone that something or someone or something you desperately want and you end up going on like a, a suicidal, uh, let's say, what's the right word, path to obtain it to your demise, right? Like everyone has been through those moments of obsession that are almost best characterized through infatuation. Uh, and I could go on and on and on. I don't want to go on too long that way. But that is certainly art. But if I go to the bookstore and I pick up, let's say, a random thriller novel um it's going to have something that will entertain somebody else not me uh, <laughs> i i rather find them rather boring um they they don't provide that they, they have a structure that mimics um what you see in art right so they're going to have a narrative structure that's fundamental it's kind of what we talked about uh, i believe i don't know in our last conversation or the one before but we definitely I think it was the first conversation about plot, right? We talked about that narrative structure and how you really can't subvert that for a story. However, um, that is not sufficient to make a thing art. Merely arranging a series of events into that structure does not art make. Um, and you could make something that is exciting, but it's missing. It's missing whatever it is that makes the art function in the way that you outlined right so you, you it gives you a numinous experience universally it doesn't matter who what when you are it doesn't matter what you are but it doesn't matter who or when you are if you're a human being and you know you can empathize and experience the emotions secondhand from the experience of this art so what that says to me is that sometimes we have overlap you can have art that functions as escapism uh, but escapism itself is not necessarily a sub subcategory of art. Is that what do you think of all that? I know I rambled on for a long time. Um, I could see 
where that could be the case. Uh, I was originally coming in here to be uh, under the uh, auspices that I was going to say that escapism is generally just like poorly constructed art. But I can see the possibility where, like, there can be el- there can be um, examples of escapism that falls outside of what we could broadly consider art. I suppose. Yeah, it might help if we start thinking about propaganda at this point, because having something else here, a third definition, will help us triangulate what we're talking about. I think so. When you hear the word propaganda, uh, particularly in literature, but in general as well, what do you think? Like, how do you define something as propaganda? Uh, propaganda has, exists solely for the purpose of convincing you of an idea or to make you think that everybody is accepting of an idea. It can be one of those two things, generally. Because, like, me, Soviet uh... propaganda wasn't to convince anybody of anything. It was to make people feel alone, especially towards the end of the Soviet Union. Yeah, so with propaganda, uh, you are putting a... a Well, there is some similarity, right? You're putting a thought or feeling in someone's head. Um, However, so the question is, how is that different from art? Does uh, If I was... Uh, if I was gorgeous, maybe um, I might say, "Well, you know, how is art not the same as propaganda? You know, you're all just putting thoughts or feelings in people's heads and hearts, aren't we? Like, what's the difference? Art is willing to ask a question, I think, and propaganda feeds you an answer to a question you never asked, perhaps. And that. Nathan, you have stumbled upon um, my definition of art that makes it different from propaganda, that then makes it different from escapism. Um, so I might as well give it now that we're, we're here in the conversation and, and you interject when you feel you need or tell me what you think. So um, I like to look at the root of words. And we look at the, it might be weird to say this, but I think the word artifice is probably more fundamental than the word art. I don't know etymologically if that's the case, but I think in terms of the meanings of the words, which means that art is something artificial. Now, we think of that as bad in our uh, you know, modern parlance, but people did not always think that way, particularly when we lived a lot closer to nature and it was trying to kill us all the time. At that point, you know, something that man built was like a, a kind of glory and something to celebrate. And you can see that even, uh, you know, if you read things written a couple hundred years ago, when they say uh, artifice or artificial, they do not mean it in a negative way. They mean it in a positive way, the same way we might use the word artistic today. Why am I bringing that up? Well, I think that part of art is the humanization of a thing. And I think that is the mechanism by which it taps into the human universal. So we are, uh, say if we're making something, right? So you have a human being and they're constructing a thing and they're, they're composing, let's say in the case of fiction, and they're, they're composing that fiction in a human way because there are certainly non-human ways, ways that are unintelligible or ineffective, meaning like A, like not emotionally activating towards humans. So when we're talking about literature, it's the, let's say, humanizing construction of 
a, let's say in this case, written work in order to tap into those human universals. And then you've just mentioned before that art poses a question. And I think that is perhaps maybe more core to the telos of art. At least I think it is. And I didn't come up with this idea. I stole it from uh, Jordan Peterson, but I think he's right. That if something is artistic, when the person is creating it, they don't know the answer to the question they're posing. And part of the function of that art is to discover an answer to a question that you can't currently answer. So in the, in the course of a story, and I think I mentioned this in our conversation about plot, I don't know how the characters are going to resolve their conflicts. I just put them in the situation and then from that position try and work out, well, how the hell would I, how the hell would I get around this? And I think that that, uh, would say, genuine endeavor makes the art art, right? It, it, uh, and why would that be? Because I actually don't know the answer to the question I just posed myself. Why might it? I'll, I'll throw it to you first before I just sit here and jabber on. Why would it be that genuinely approaching a question and trying to come up with a real answer as opposed to a prepackaged answer? Uh, why would that, let's say, function or facilitate, the right word, why would that facilitate the tapping into the human universals that, that art seems to do? Because you're forced to grapple with it yourself if you're like not just repackaging a solution that you've heard elsewhere. If you're throwing, in fiction, if you're throwing characters into a situation that you at first do not know the solution to, and then grapple with that solution yourself or discuss it with others while in the writing process, then you're more likely to come to an organic and meaningful resolution. <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense, right? So essentially, when it's a genuine question and you're arriving at a genuine answer, you're approaching the question like a human being approaches a problem in the real world, as opposed, and we could, we could juxtapose this with propaganda, and then we could, we could uh, loop back around to escapism, I think. So as opposed to propaganda, and where propaganda you approach the problem for from a very non-human perspective. Well, what is a non-human perspective? It's certainly an abstraction and a, a, like a pre-planned, pre-packaged conclusion, right? We'll use the word conclusion or end in, in place of an answer. It reminds me quite a lot of uh, something like central planning, or uh, if you ever read the social contract uh, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau lays out you know, his whole idea about how he's going to set up this like perfect government with the general will and the sovereign, or for that matter, Plato's Republic, uh, you know, any of these people who are trying to, to make something that is going to, let's say, get rid of all the messiness of human beings interacting with each other. Um, that's what, that's what propaganda reminds me of. You're trying to put something out that strips, it's actually the reverse function, right? It strips a bit of the humanity away from the person who imbibes it. Um, am I getting a little too, uh, I don't know, a little too woo or woo merchant speak with that one? What do you think? Uh, 
No, I'm I'm kind of I, I'm kind of understanding it. I'm looking at it from like it's a constructivist mindset. I was just uh, for some reason my mind wandered off into a scene from Blood Meridian again, where <laughs> I know that comes up a couple times on this show. But uh, there's a scene in which they are passing through the ruins of an ancient Native American civilization that predates even the ones that they are, like, ransacking now. And uh, they were discussing the different. well, the judge was discussing the differences between a civilization that constructs in uh, hide and bone, and then one that constructs in stone. And I'm thinking also of propaganda as the final stage of that evolution of civilizations, the attempt to reconstruct humanity or the human mind, but as of yet, it almost always fails because of the biological undercurrent of the human psyche, right? At least that's my thinking of it. It's like yeah. propaganda is an attempt to civilize, quote-unquote, human nature, but as of yet, always fails to some degree or another. Yeah, it's, it, it runs counter to, to nature. Now, what's interesting about that, so we could say uh, propaganda then is entirely, in, not entirely, but it's, it's, it functions to move us away from our, uh, our, our nature, our biology. Um, and by nature, I mean it. In, it's funny, if you read um, Will to Power and I think Twilight of the Idols, Nietzsche, starts talking about like taking us back to nature and then he specifically stops his conversation to say and not like that idiot Rousseau and then he'll proceed to insult Rousseau for like a two paragraph long sentences um, and then uh, go on with well actually no he doesn't go on with his next point then it's the next aphorism um, but but that's what I, I I think propaganda is a stripping us away from our messy biology might it be the the case that escapism is the reverse that it might be an overindulgence in our base biology um and, and that's kind of weird to, to say because that would put art somewhere between escapism and propaganda um i don't know if that's the right place to put it but um that that thought popped in my head what do you think of that idea that escapism no that that's excellent. Uh, I had never considered that before, but that makes a lot of sense because, like, if propaganda is, like, not forcing, trying to force an idea in your head and escapism is vapid because of its lack of ideas, then art is in between because it is presenting you with ideas that you can explore rather than forcing or a lack thereof. And, like, escapism can be, is also useful in like the uh the pacification of a populace right whenever we were talking about uh my comparison of bread and circuses uh i know gladiatorial combat was a bad example because like there is uh i guess some universal thing about that but uh but like propaganda and escapism can both serve authoritarian purposes in that case i guess yeah, it depends on uh, whether the individuals are. I'm going to get very, uh, I guess, Petersonian with this, but I, I, I read too much Yoon, and when you read too much Yoon, then like you can't escape and you fall into this pit and like you're stuck. But uh, it depends on whether we're talking about the dragon of chaos or the ty uh, tyrannical king. So the, um, and that's really whether you're talking about tyranny versus nihilism. So. The dragon of chaos is nihilism. It is the, uh, let's say, the not dispassionate. That's not the right word. 
it, it uh, this is going to take us in a, in a loop here for a second, but I've been you know reading through a Will to Power, which is the last of Nietzsche's books I hadn't read, um, and he talks about how nihilism comes about, and essentially nihilism comes about as a result of the pursuit of truth, and then we encounter our own grand insignificance from the perspective of the universe or from the perspective of God or whatever, it doesn't matter. And when we discover that, uh, we have to make a choice. And one of the choices that we can make is just to say, well, if from the perspective of the universe, my existence is insignificant, then, and I accept, just accept that just on its face with no other thoughts, I, I terminate my thoughts there. Uh, the result is a kind of, well, I can't bear the suffering intrinsic to being, and so I need an opiate. And I think uh, there's many opiates that we can choose. We see them all over the place today. Uh, few people actually choose escapist literature um, because even that has too much of a hurdle to overcome now that we have, let's say, more immediate means. Um, you know, you can escape into video games, into television, movies, pornography, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, if you want to go into, if you're in West Virginia, heroin's rather a uh, popular escape method. Uh, or I don't know how bad it is right over across the river in Ohio where we're like neighbor neighbor states here. But, but yeah, uh, so that's escapism. That's one answer. There's another answer uh, that you can, you could throw out the nihilism, which is to try and crush it into oblivion. So the the nihilistic answer was the dragon of chaos, and that the tyrannical king is the notion that one can. Well, there's two different notions. They're basically they amount to the same thing in action. One is that you can construct a false god. That's like an ideology, um, and the the false god can give significance to man and to you know, the individual involved. Or uh, one believes that if, if you go into old school Marx, like before he wrote the Communist Manifesto, he got this idea from Hegel, um, the idea that we are all collectively God if only we were to realize it and that we could wake ourselves up. But the problem with that is once you assume that, then you also assume a certain level of infallibility and correctness and now you're now you're in propaganda right so now we've moved away from the the opiate that is escapism to the propaganda that is nece necessary in order to bring the collective into lockstep and to crush out any deviation which is going to always happen in nature um, and then we will then we get the heartless soulless and in a sense, worse than useless propagandistic works, because not only do they not um, answer a question, right? Well, they 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 provide a lie that puts you. I'm going to get kind of Taoist about it, but I've been reading a lot of Buddhism, and I just did a bunch of Taoism, so I can't help it. Uh, but what ends up happening is that puts you out of accord with uh, the the universe, right? You imagine like. If the universe exists, it exists so. That's what we call objective. And then you make you start acting in a way that is out of accord with reality. You're gonna start running into walls, right? Like you're gonna you're gonna fall into a ditch. You're going to not end up at the locations that you want, um, and that brings us to ruin that way. So we have two. What's interesting about that? And I'll throw. I want to throw the question back to you because just jabbered on for I don't know how many minutes. 
so we have these two poles. We have escapism in the realm of chaos uh, at the extreme, and then we have uh, propaganda at the realm of tyranny, like tyrannical, ideological stultification on the other extreme. And then we have art, the genuine answer to a genuine question. Um, that would be like the the hero who straddles the borders between order and chaos and explores the unknown. When we have that, let's say, what do I want to ask? I, I guess I'll just throw. I just I just laid that all out there. What do you think? I did what I laid out. I can't think of a, a, a coherent question at the moment. I, uh, I'm I'm also trying to digest this uh, flood of uh, thoughts, but um, I'm trying to find something that I fundamentally disagree with to keep the conversation going, but uh, I don't know. This is a problem with us having a lot of common, uh, let's say, philosophical um, or yeah, philosophic we, background, right? Uh, we'll we'll know, move the conversation we, forward into somewhere where it's uh, a little bit more interesting, uh, productive, perhaps. So uh, we had mentioned before that sometimes art can also function as escapism what do you think of the notion that actually the best art um, also functions as the best escapism? Like it, it, the, like the highest form of art would do both things at the same time. I would say the most popular art certainly does. So like um, there's an obvious reason that like speculative fiction is typically popular and the most popular speculative fiction tends to be something that somebody can imagine escaping into, but at the same time is, like, compelling. It asks big questions, but it's, like, it's not something we escape into for want of an easier life, but a more interesting life, typically. So, like, the kinds of people that want to live in uh, Middle Earth or whatever, for using a Tolkienian fantasy example, it's like living in such a world would not be easier but it would be filled with meaning and purpose because there's an objective purpose to the world. There is a meaningful struggle between good and evil and such, right? So, like, that in itself is, a, is like, an escapist simplification of the world, but at the same time, there's, like, meaning in it, I guess. Yeah, that brings to mind... Uh, inevitably, I was going to have to bring this up. So... Um... That brings to mind the master-slave dialectic, because when I, right after I asked you the question, it's popped into my head, and it's going to cause us uh, cause a problem. I had mentioned before, uh, and I'll ask I'll ask you this and see if it's the same with you. Do you find that um, you require your let's say even something that you want to treat as escape to, escapism to be somewhat artistic in order for you to enjoy it? Yeah, I, I, I generally do. So, like, you know my tastes and my background and what books I like to read and what stuff I like to consume. It's like, there's a, there is a degree of, like, escapism and power fantasy in it, but I also like there to be, like, other things going on and other themes, right? Uh, and that's generally my preference. Uh, I, I, of course, like, we are both people who typically write fantasy and or science fiction sometimes in my case and like the idea is you're writing characters that you think are interesting or cool 
and put them in situations that are interesting and cool, but you're still trying to do so in a way that's like stimulating and compelling. Right. Yeah, that get, that gets into uh, borrowing a lot from Jordan today. So in Maps of Meaning, uh, I think this actually comes really late in the book, he starts talking about the divine nature of interest. And this is something that gets like crushed out of us as children, and I hate it. Um, I hate it so much that I get filled with this like spirit of vengeance, and I want to crack people in the head with this uh, big like practice trainer sword as opposed to the actual sword that's hanging right above it um in minecraft <laughs> but, but yeah but so the divine nature of interest what that what peterson suggests actually is that what you're interested in is in keeping with your let's say nature as a human being you could think of it as in keeping with your instincts it's what you're interested in if you pers- it's the thing that your biology is geared to and wants to pursue to a point of excellence to become very very good at and when you when you do that you can actually succeed in the world if you incorporate that interest properly it's it, because and the reason why that's true is because of pareto distributions right once we start competing you have to be in the like top 80th percentile it's not good enough to be average you have to be excellent and if you're interested in a thing, it just makes it much, much more, much easier to be excellent in that thing. And so I think the same thing comes to be with art, right? Uh, again, I'm, I'm being a bit exploratory, so who knows where my thoughts are about to go. But I think a thing has to be of interest, a question has to be of interest to you for you to have the let's say, initiative and capacity to answer it. Nietzsche thought this quite a lot. He brings this up all the time. It's interesting reading it as a modern person because I don't... uh, It took me a while to understand why he was saying it, but he continuously uh, criticizes the idea of approaching all problems from a purely disinterested and objective perspective. And given that the scientific revolution was relatively recent during his time, I'm willing to bet that people were much, 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 much more interested in trying to be as as dispassionate about answering questions as possible. And right away, I can see the problem. And the problem is that if if you're legitimately disinterested with answering a question, are you going to be willing to go and answer that question when it's uncomfortable, when it hurts you emotionally, when you don't want to accept the answer? And I think the answer to that question is probably no, right? Like if if you're not interested in in genuinely answering that question, you're just going to terminate your thoughts prematurely in a place that's comfortable or in a place that's going to give you accolades or or whatever. You'll have some other interests. But answering the question becomes a means to some other end rather than an end in and of itself. And I think that destroys the art. And I think that's why there are elements common to escapism in art that we both produce and that we enjoy, right? It's it's not that you include escapist elements. You include elements of interest because those elements are going to facilitate the answering of that genuine question. Does that hold water? Yeah, I, I would say so. Um uh kind I I don't know at what point it entered my head to comment this, but I just didn't want to interrupt you. Uh, but I was thinking about 
like the role of uh, violence in art, and usually it's associated with escapist art. But then I'm thinking about Homer, uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and stuff. But especially the Iliad, and just how much like we use violence in art as a medium to like con- usually to convey the conflict of ideas that we're exploring. And like, uh, I think that though that that like heavy use of violent conflict is considered usually trashy in literature, and that it's an escapist element. I think it is also uh, a very useful abstraction for the debate of the question. I guess I apologize for not knowing when that popped into my head during your pre- uh, the, your previous points. And it feels like I'm kind of going off to- off point now, but no, no, no. I, let's pursue I this. Wanted to... Let's pursue yeah. this. So I don't know. I, my immediate thought is that sounds like the idea that violence is trashy to me sounds extremely effeminate. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I would argue that, but uh, I, I'm also uh, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate with the literary world, right? Where, uh... Well, look at the literary world. Who is it full of? <laughs> it's well, it's we're not in ancient Greece, man. Like it's because if you look at in ancient Greece, how masculine were the like the orators and the storytellers? Like all, extremely. Uh, okay. People might not know this, but Plato and Socrates were buff. Like this, this is not like a, everybody in ancient Greece worked out, and I think they were better for it. Everybody should hit the gym all the time. <laughs> Not only did they hit the gym, but like everyone went to war. Like Socrates went to war, like he was a soldier. Um, I think I think even fucking Alcibiades went to war too. Alcibiades is like practically a swashbuckling like superhero of the ancient world. Uh, There's a lot of characters in like we think of in like ancient uh, like the Bronze Age in general. People who you otherwise don't think of it, but they went on adventures and stuff. So I talked about like last episode I was on about my ins- one of my inspirations is uh, one of I th- I think it was Plato's students who wrote the Anabasis uh, which inspired the warriors because he was just this like young intellectual aristocrat who was like I want to live a life that of note uh, and I'm not going to live a life of note sitting around so I'm going to go off on a mercenary adventure in Persia <laughs> like a lot of these people were like this. It's like they, the Greeks had like this weird thing where they had an ideal balance of like the martial and the intellectual being, where they would be both fit, competent, warriors, but also like artists and philosophers. And these would all just be wrapped up into one person in a way that you just rarely see in any other civilization. But they had tons of people like this. Yeah. So this, I mean, this is why Nietzsche. Sorry to keep bringing him up, but like it just no, I love you too. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope that. Oh, I, I definitely know that not everybody who's listening loves Nietzsche, so I apologize for for, for <laughs> being like an agnostic hermeticist, which is basically what Nietzsche was. Um, now that I've read a ton of him and read, read some of the uh, hermetic literature as well, but yeah, so what the Greeks were doing was they were not stripping away parts of human nature. Right, like, and at their time, it was a little harder to strip away the reality that sometimes the answer is violence. Uh, 
and to be to be frank, like the answer a lot of the time is is violence. So, um, here here's an easy example for real life. So uh, there's a local park. Sometimes I'll sit at and I one you know sit there reading, but I'm not local to the neighborhood. And there are a few um, like Nimrod parents who are reasonably skeptical of like who I am. So if I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there and I have uh, I don't know like a revolver strapped to my side. I could be relatively certain that if this person starts acting like an idiot, that it's not going to escalate very far. And the reason why it's not going to escalate very far is I just pull my shirt back and then there's this like giant end frame Smith and Wesson <laughs> revolver there, right? Like a model 29. And it's just like, at that point, the introduction of the, you could say the threat of violence, but in a sense, the reality of violence brings about peace and order and conversation, right? It just, but, but people don't think about it that way, right? Like the other examples, like gorillas. So like gorillas don't fight very often. And the reason why gorillas don't fight very often is because if they did, they would wound each other really badly. And then the, the winner of the fight would get like murdered by some other gorilla. And so the reason why gorillas don't fight all the time is because they're hyper competent at violence because there's those freaking tanks. So what am I saying there? Uh, I think what I'm saying is that we have to, if we're willing to ask a genuine question, bring this back around to the definition of art, we would say that we have to be willing to accept an uncomfortable answer. And that uncomfortable answer is that sometimes Violence is correct. Yes, I w- I would certainly agree with that, and I could probably like we could have probably made a whole episode out of the the <laughs> violence question. Uh, it's you should you should add it to the list, but uh, but yeah, um, well, hey, it's let's, very let's go. go ahead. Go no, you go ahead. I was going to say, why don't we just go down that route, right? Because we can t- we can bounce this, we can bounce anything back and forth between art and escapism. So, I just we just talked about how if you're pursuing art, like sometimes, perhaps a lot of the time, violence is going to be, particularly in literature, it's going to be part of a story because in reality, violence is part of reality that keeps, let's say, humans as social animals functioning in society, which is counterintuitive to the, uh, let's say, soft modern folk who might be reading what the hell is going on when it is um in in escapism right so let's strip it away from art we're not talking about art that also functions in a similar way as escapism on top of itself but in in pure escapism you mentioned that uh violence is rife um what the hell is going on there what's the difference typically in a purely escapist literature or any fiction like comics whatever violence is not really a means to resolve a meaningful question it's usually just like to exact to put the protagonist's power into frame in a sense i suppose it's like most escapist fiction is like at least in the modern day like originally i was just gonna make fun of harem anime but we'll go down this road. <laughs> uh, so, like, a lot of escapist fiction tends to be power fantasy in which you have a protagonist who is supposed to be an insert for the general, like, population who is expected to be reading it. 
and you display the the person that they could be in the in that in those shoes with that power. So the violence that they engage in is usually just fighting somebody who is like obviously in the wrong and easily dispatched. And like there's no greater moral quandary associated. Mm, yeah, it's it has no greater meaning. It's power for the sake of power and nothing else. So it's divorced from the uh the human universal answering that question. And that's a problem. We, I mean, we could bounce this back and forth with um like sex as well, right? For like the harem anime. So like what were you gonna say about that? What what Yeah, what I, is... I forget what I was gonna say about that, but I came in here wanting to make fun of harem anime for some reason because art versus escapism, I think because like gen generally for the most part like, uh, that, that is a form of exaggerated escapist fantasy about, like, wanting to be desired by many people regardless of your character, and usually the characters in those things are not people that would be considered highly desirable and unlikely to be in those situations, but still end up in those situations. But, uh... Yeah, yeah, you know, that's actually, that's a, that's a valid line, and it brings up another line, right? So... Uh, we'll use a harem anime just because it's an easy example. So in a harem anime, not only is the protagonist not the kind of guy that all the women go for typically, right? Because if he was, then the um, the desperate, uh, let's say, narcotic addicted audience member would not be able to identify with the protagonist closely enough, and he would feel estranged from him. And he needs to be able to sell, to identify or project himself onto the protagonist. So it can't be. It can't be the genuine guy who does have women throwing them throwing themselves at him all the time. It can't be that. Uh, so it can't basically it can't be Conan, right? Because like then you understand why the why the uh, let's say primordial it's... instinctive driven women are constantly literally like leaping up into the air so they can hang on his neck. <laughs> it's like the difference between like seeing the protagonist and being like oh he's just like me and i wish he were in the i wish i were in those situations versus man that guy's cool i want to be like him and to me as far as escapism goes the latter is superior it's like you see this guy and suddenly you want to work out you want to learn a language you want to learn how to fight that is to me the superior route to go with like escapist leaning fiction <laughs> Yeah, so you you present something that's a, something you can obtain, and that if yeah. you if you so it's like a it's answering that question. Well, it, what's the question? How is it that you end up being the kind of guy that women throw themselves at? Well, like first of all, go to the gym, be courageous, do do dangerous and uh, rewarding things, like be master of yourself. Okay, so like that's that's it. But also. The other the other line I mentioned, the other question is like, what kind of women are going to throw themselves at you? In the harem anime, it's never anything like the actual kind of women that you have to look out for, right? Because <laughs> the the kind of women that will just throw themselves at you don't they're not typically the uh let's say honest and wholesome and loyal types of women that you would want them to be. Like they very well may be pretty enough. Like that happens in real life. Uh, but they, you know, how many Amber Herds are you going to get if you're like, a, <laughs> you know, real life movie? Oh, that's a, that's a question, right? Like the yeah. if this was art, the the reality is like the man would be like very 
like super competent, probably super hardworking, uh, very disciplined, um, have also probably lucky and he'll have succeeded. And then instead of it being wish fulfillment that all these women are throwing themselves at you, it's like here is a potential vice that's going to destroy your life if you don't watch out. Yeah, because so you'll get that that that's a good uh, that's a that's a good inversion of the harem anime it's like replace the protagonist with somebody who actually is competent and then replace all of the uh, like all these attractive female archetypes of these nice and uh pleasant women to be around with like social climbers and manipulators and like people with fundamental problems of their own that aren't very appealing at all (laughs) Are you hearing that audience, my fellow authors? If you want to write a harem style novel, that's how you do it. And that would actually probably be really interesting to read, uh, to be frank. Like, do you have you ever heard of any like I we've had the stories of like the 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 guy who gets uh betrayed by the manipulative woman and vice versa. Uh, we've had those kind of single stories, but I have never even heard of uh this kind of well, it's funny. It's really funny to say uh, the literary, artistic, genuine version or inversion of like the harem anime. Have you? No, I've never heard. I mean, the closest I can probably get is uh, I'm hesitant to uh, publicly uh, recommend this author because like he writes like very sleazy characters. He will not be to everyone's taste, but he writes under the pseudonym Delicious Tacos. And I won't say the names of some of the book titles because they're kind of they're kind of gross. But like he writes like these gross, like lecherous characters, and like he's probably the closest, but he's not quite to the level of like a harem anime protagonist. But he's like he's good with enough with women and stuff, but he also gets wrapped up in shenanigans with like the worst kind of people all the time. And he writes short stories about, like, this nameless character who some people assume is a self-insert, but it's, it's probably not. I've heard him on podcasts. He, he's, he's probably a better human being than the characters he writes. But, <laughs> but that's the, uh, that's, that author is probably the closest to get, uh, you can probably get. It's like, uh, it's an inverse Hollaback, in a way. Um, I don't know if people are familiar with Hollaback. But uh, he's very popular in like the the lonely dude subcultures, and usually he writes about like atomized men in society who are kind of like like introverted and separate from society, and all the weird modernity stuff. He, I think, I don't know what country he's from. I think he's French, but his stuff is available in English. Um, so there's so, so yeah, he writes the same kind of like stuff as Hollaback but of the inverse type of character, an extrovert sleazebag. All right, and that's Delicious Tacos, the pseudonym, right? <laughs> yes, that's that's what he goes by. But uh, take take it, like, as I said, I cannot recommend this to most people. His stuff is very sleazy, offensive, and kind of gross. But if you're interested in that sort of thing, have at it. Yeah. All right, so uh, we've got maybe 10 minutes left. I want to talk about, let's say, works of fiction that when we were younger um, were treated as escapism, but that later on perhaps have become 
artistic. Like not that they weren't artistic before, but let's say the as let's say you could use you and I as an example. So as our tastes became more refined, very much in the Nietzschean sense there, um, as we became more conscious and self-conscious of the world and, and obviously ourselves and started to think more deeply, to learn more deeply, um, then we, you know, sometimes you come back to something you enjoyed. Oftentimes you find it to be disappointing, but sometimes you find it to be way, way richer than you did the first, like the, you know, when you were younger, uh, because you just couldn't see all of the depth. Are there any uh, works of literature that come to mind uh, for you that are that way? Nah, that's a good question. I mean, most I'll, of I'll... the stuff that I had originally, like, thought might be not uh, stuff that I had heard of in my youth, I had thought to myself. Uh, was probably not very good and highly dismisses of, dismissive of it. But then upon a visiting in my adulthood, I've had more of the reverse experience where it's like, I initially dismissed this thing and then I went back and I looked at this thing and I'm like, actually, this is way more, way better than people give it credit for. But uh, go ahead and give your example. So I want to use like... a popular example uh, first before I use any personal examples. Um, so let's say in the realms of fantasy, like probably the most in in yeah, influential work of fantasy in the past couple uh, or few at this point, decades, was, was probably the Harry Potter series. And, you know, I read those when I was uh, in high school. Uh, admittedly, that's kind of late to, to start. You know, a lot of people started reading them when they were in elementary school, but they they certainly served purely as entertainment value at the time for me. Uh, but looking back uh, as an adult, particularly being a little bit more well-read in Joseph Campbell and Yoon and uh, Peterson and, and the likes, those people who see archetypal uh, figures in literature, it's it's kind of undeniable whether it was a conscious decision or not on Rowling's part that the the reason why Harry Potter resonated so deeply was because it just hit on archetype after archetype after archetype over and over and over again. It was it was written to be a universal or written to be. It ended up being a universal story, um, and I think that that is something that for a lot of people, even to this day, as adults, probably they still only think of it as escapism. Um, but I actually think that really like that, that story, uh, you know, think of, of it, what you want in terms of like what the high, whether it's highbrow in terms of the prose, I haven't read it in forever. Uh, the prose could be awful for all I know. I, I can't remember, but in terms of the content aspect of it, um, it, it certainly has a lot of depth and is something that you probably do want to give to your children to read growing up um, that would be my popular example yeah i i guess my most popular well-known example is of course like of course in high school i had read tolkien and i liked it but uh tolkien uh his info whenever i got into college and started really being interested in ancient history antiquity the dark ages and stuff generally pre-modern mindsets i it took me a while to come to the appreciation of just how 
an interesting mix of pre-modern thinking and like uh enlightened christianity middle earth is kind of built upon that fusion of ideas because like that it feels genuinely like i i don't i think sometimes i think tolkien is overrated so i don't want to gas him up too much but i think of uh but like going back and reappreciating him whenever i got older it's interesting how he seems to masterfully capture the medieval christian mindset while at the same time exploring what is essentially a pagan mythic world. It's an interesting fusion crossroads of ideas, which of course he seems to have like he he made a uh, a living or like he, he made a living in linguistics and translating ancient like iron age literature and stuff and he considers his translation of Beowulf to be like his peak achievement more so than his fantasy literature. Uh but like yeah, that that would be my example, and I don't want to go too off into that, but I I do. I'm gonna jump off of that, uh, and I know I talk about him, I talk about it a lot. But Robert E. Howard's Howard's Conan. If you want to, let's say, read someone who who actually I believe did understand how ancient people thought, Robert E. Howard's Conan is really really good. Uh, when you listen. To essentially anything that's like pre-Socratic, out of the Greeks, um, you'll get this feeling immediately, like, "Oh, yeah, it's Conan." It's like how the people are in Conan. And you mentioned uh, just a moment ago with Tolkien, this combination of kind of uh, let's say Christian and pagan um, mindsets. And actually, Nietzsche brings this up, and Will to Power he brings it up explicitly that there, um, there, it's a, it's an entirely different spirit the the christian spirit and the pagan spirit what do i mean by that right because that's getting kind of uh, i don't want to say the word esoteric but i'm going to say it and what i mean by that is that there's the idea of the let's say the i would say the ego and the consciousness as being the uh primary Right, so this is very like it's this is very platonic. This idea, right? That's the the chariot master who has the reins, who controls the horses. I think that the pagan spirit is not that. The pagan spirit um, assumes that the unconscious, the instinctive, the animalistic, the parts of us that are closest to nature are actually primary, and that the let's say uniquely human element, the the ego, is secondary to that. And when you read Conan. It feels a little bit like, and some of the characters are genuinely a little bit flat, but when you really pay attention, you start to notice, wait a minute, if we are allowed to run our instincts to their course, right? If we if we don't exist in this kind of liberal society with all of this social training and constraints that really come from English culture, um, if if you take that away... Like just go over to Europe, and people are a lot more like the the pagans in a way that they're much more vulnerable to their passions. And then go out of Europe to somewhere that's not Christian, right? And see just how vulnerable to the passions people are, like a lot to the point where, like, if you if you pull a giant population of people uh, from those places and put them into like a modern uh, Western liberal democracy, they have a hard time integrating because they can't control themselves. Because like, 
uh, you know, like rape becomes a problem, all kinds of things, right? Violent outbursts, uh, machete fights in some places, right? Like, why is that? Well, because the reality is there is a kind of uh, human universal in that pagan spirit that ties directly down to the emotions. That's why with like all the pagan mythologies, we call them, but we could really call them pagan religions, treat each each god as basically the uh, personification of an emotion, right? <clears throat> so what are, what are, what are, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say this. This seems to this does resonate with the themes of most, like all of Robert E. Howard's work, in which one of his big things is uh, savagery versus civilization, and how our savage nature is primary, and eventually all civilizations crumble, and we revert to the mean, which is just you know our our barbarous nature. And on the topic of like it being like pagan versus the civilized Christian ideal. One of the most iconic scenes is symbolic of this in uh, A Witch Shall Be Born, and this was also done in the film adaptation, in which the protagonist is crucified and pulls him off, himself off the cross, which is representative of him rejecting the, civili the, the martyrdom for civilization that Christianity represents. But uh, you, could, you could probably go deeper. One could probably go deeper into that, but I just wanted to make that illusion comparison the sim the symbolism of that yeah well the way i want to tie that back in because you mentioned barbarity but remember um how we talked about how in you know the modern literary circles something like violence you can really well I, I wish we could say sexuality um but sexuality is like celebrated because um, sex positive feminism integrated with intersectionality and then infected everything that's a whole conversation of itself but we don't have i would also argue i would also argue real quick that our society isn't actually very pro-sexuality because it is very infertile and sterile sexuality but again another conversation <laughs> that, that i agree with that um that's i agree with that because the let's say the gender ideologues ate sex positive feminism like they devoured it and now we've destroyed the concept of sex so sexuality would you say reproductive sexuality is now obliterated we still have this weird hedonic uh, i don't know if hedonic is the right word hedonistic um impulse and you can see if you go to grad school like you will see it you'll have your some of your fellow students will get a master's degree writing microfiction pornography. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. And they'll read it out loud during the graduation ceremony when we read all like snippets of all our work to like a group of people <laughs> who are not prepared for it. And it is hilarious. Um, that I want to set that aside for a second because I want to get back around to we mentioned sex and violence uh, as being kind of lowbrow trashy that's you in the modern literary circles, they consider it typical of commercial or escapist fiction. Uh, we talked about how in actuality, that's wrong. The part, the problem is that meaning was, uh, say, stripped out of them. And part of what makes them important in terms of producing real art is the reality that sometimes the genuine answer to a genuine question involves violence or involves sexuality or some other uh let's say i don't know if these word touchy but um 
potentially offensive subject matter. And he used the word barbarity. And I actually think that something that's important that perhaps is the reason why we have this wrongheaded division between art and escapism. I mean, what I mean by wrongheaded is that it's drawn on the wrong lines. I don't think the different. I do think the difference is genuine, but I think the definitions, the borders of the definitions, are are, are muddled right now. And the reason I think that is is because of the influence of a liberal thought that is born out of um, Christian universalism. Now, obviously, I get that from Nietzsche, but I think it, uh, and Peterson to a large extent, though Peterson views it as a positive, whereas Nietzsche definitely did not like it. Uh, but I think it's legitimate to say that the primacy of the ego, the primacy of the Plutonic ideal embodied in Christianity uh, that birthed the Enlightenment ideals that gave rise to Western liberal democracies that give us the cultures that we have, these cultures value things that are opposed to our natural, we could say, pagan uh, instincts. And, it, and you know, partly it, it denies parts of our nature. And I think the problem with that is that then what we do is instead of incorporating those properly into art, well, at least some of us anyway, instead of incorporating that properly into art, we we push it off and it and it mostly just goes to escapism. And then the whole realm of those instincts become corrupted and perverted by, uh, let's say, are corrupted and perverted into lazily manufactured opiates. What do you think of that? Yeah, um, I think that uh, our we live in a cage of sorts that subverts our base natures, and then oftentimes, like our opiates, are fed back to us in the form of our repressed nature. And uh, I could, uh, I, I, I kind of want to write an in-depth thing and come back with that at some point. But yeah, um, this is a thing that I'm very interested in, um, the idea of uh, how much we sacrifice of our nature to maintain the abstractions that make up modern civilization. Um, and I it's guess you lot, could... Man. And the way that, like... So whenever I was talking about propaganda and escapism sometimes working in twain to suppress the masses, right? Like, the propaganda tells you what to think, while the escapist feeds the nature that it's trying to suppress so that it doesn't, that it doesn't result in, like, you lashing out from a lack of the thing, right? And uh, it, it, it kind of plays into that. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, we'll have to have a follow-up conversation uh, once you've had some time to think about it. And I definitely have explored some thoughts, uh, made some connections that I had not made before uh, between art and its function and the way that it fulfills that function, its relationships, particularly, uh, especially with escapism and propaganda being, let's say, uh, perversions away from the Aristotelian golden mean. Definitely haven't thought that through before. I mean, this has been a really, really interesting conversation. We are 
short on time. Uh, before we go, uh, I just want to remind everyone out there, you can participate in this podcast if you'd like to. I'd love to have uh, more, I don't want to say guest co-host, guest guest. I don't know the word for it. Uh, but go ahead and check out wildoutlet.com. You can find my contact form. Send me an email if you are interested. Uh, just make sure to list how and you know how you know of me and whatnot so you're not so some random stranger uh trying to contact me out on the internet uh, if you have a topic you like to discuss you can send that in the same way at wildisle.com um while you're there check out my editing service the wild isle style guide uh let me help you the same way that i was helped through grad school and you could develop a particular style of your own you can embed uh deep thematic influences into your work and produce something that is art rather than mere escapism or uh to be honest i think worse propaganda i fucking hate propaganda uh also while you're there check out my book wand smoke broken for all type of uh artistic stylistic literary examples and thematic depth it is a work of art if i do say so myself but i will toot my own horn here i'm very actually very proud of that novel um i'm happily writing the sequel i've got a slew of uh, short stories that i should release as soon as i am less destitute because uh, right now i can barely feed myself uh, which is why you should go and check out my book at wildoutlit.com <laughs> uh nate do you have anything you want to show no but uh feed this man he is working hard to make it as an artist in this cruel world <laughs> thank you nate Yes. All right. Well, uh, thank you guys for tuning in and I will see you next time.